0: This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome! Today we're heading to Jamaica, the third largest island in the Caribbean. The few things I know about Jamaica is that they have a bobsled team, and that some of the fastest runners on earth grew up there. Jamaica holds the records for the most rum bars per square mile, and the most churches per square mile. The island of Jamaica is a beautiful tropical paradise, but it's also an extremely violent place, with one of the highest murder rates in the world especially around Kingston and its slums. This is where Opal Austin, a single mother, was trying to raise seven children. Her life was a grinding life of poverty in her home on Waltham Park Road Track. The word track in this case means that it's a neighborhood accessible only by foot or by bicycle. In Kingston, Jamaica, Opal made a little bit of money by selling items like biscuits, box drinks, cigarettes, and candy from a small stall built on the main road nearest her home. In 1991, she had eight people living in her small house with a dirt floor. The seven children came from four different fathers, but none of the fathers were to be seen on most days. Opal's house had intermittent electricity and water. The toilet was a hole in the ground, and there was no phone on the premises. Opal made sure that her children went to school and wore the uniforms that all the children were required to wear. Two of Opal's children, Melanie, called Mellie, and Duane, called Sabo, are, unfortunately, who we will focus our attention on in this episode. Melanie was thirteen years old and in grade seven, and though she wasn't the greatest student, she loved to draw and read. She was a quiet person and didn't give anybody any problems. She was quiet and liked to immerse herself inside of books. Her younger brother, Duane, was a year younger and more outgoing. He wasn't one for books, but he loved attention and loved entertaining his family and friends. Although they were poor, Opal made sure they always had enough to eat. She would cook porridge soup, fried dumplings, and when money got tight, she would take on extra work, like washing other people's clothing, in order to put food on the table. She worked very hard to keep the children in her care healthy and educated, but things weren't easy for her. Everton Bittersing was the father to Duane and Melanie. In 1991, he was living in Canada, far from Opal and his two kids. One day, he showed up out of the blue, buying his two children ice cream and treats they rarely got. He offered Opal a chance to let his children, Melanie and Duane, migrate with him to Canada. In Canada, they'd have the opportunity to go to school and live a life better than the one they had in Jamaica. They wouldn't be alone, either, He had two toddlers in Canada with another baby on the way, and Everton was going to pick up another son of his named Cleon and bring him to Canada as well. Cleon would be the oldest at age 17. The opportunity wouldn't come again, and it wasn't an easy decision for Opal to make, but she thought that her children would have a better life living in Canada than in the slums of Jamaica. In her mind, the slums of Canada were a hundred times better than the slums of Jamaica. Everton's three Jamaican children would fly to Canada on January 25, 1991. The tickets were bought by their well-meaning but impoverished Jamaican mothers. They'd be living with their father and his wife, Elaine. On the flight to Toronto, their first flight ever, the kids were overflowing with excitement. Their dreams were the same as many immigrants' dreams about coming to the United States. They believed they'd have a better life more opportunities, and a chance to really make it. The Jamaican twist on this story is that it isn't exactly rare for Jamaican families to send their children to the U.S. or to Canada, because doing marginally well in either of those countries was still considered much better economically than it was for so many families in Jamaica. Families would, and still do, search out friends, relatives, and loved ones looking for the opportunity to send their children abroad. The children's excitement didn't last very long, because once they arrived at the small, one-bedroom apartment located on the 22nd floor of a high-rise, they realized how tight space really was. That elevator ride up 22 floors took a while. Luckily, the elevator was working. Can you imagine hauling groceries or kids up and down 22 flights of stairs? Everton Bittersing and his wife, Elaine, already had two young children of their own, and Elaine was pregnant with her third child, who would turn out to be a baby girl. The three Jamaican born children marched into the small apartment, each carrying a single suitcase which held everything they owned in the world. There were suddenly three more bodies taking up space in a tiny apartment that already housed four, with the newborn on the way. Their welcome wasn't warm and inviting. Instead, Elaine seemed to look down on the Jamaican-born children. She immediately treated them like they were dirty underlings, and she expected the children to work for the family instead of being a part of the family. Within a week, their stepmother was openly doubting that Cleon was even Everton's son. She thought he didn't look like his father and didn't like his hair. This became such an issue in the household that Everton and Elaine ultimately marched him down to get a DNA test. But it proved that he was indeed his father's son. The treatment by Elaine and Everton wasn't improved by these results, however. Cleon, Melanie, and Duane didn't really feel welcome in Canada. It seemed like their father didn't really want them, and their mother didn't really even like them. She walked around the house with a Bible in her hands while telling the new arrivals that she thought they came from the devil. Soon, Cleon was having to clean the bathroom after using it. God forbid a vile hair from his dirty head contaminate the place. He and his Jamaican-born siblings had to eat from different dishes than the precious Canadian-born children. Eating that way prevented their germs from intermingling. Well, at least that was Elaine's rationale. The Jamaican-born children were fed different food, cheaper and less plentiful food, and were eventually forced to eat off the floor things only got worse. They were often starved, and sometimes the only food they were fed was cornmeal, which, in Jamaica, is used to feed dogs. None of the children would ever go to school in Canada. It seemed as though Everton and Elaine had complete control over the children. They certainly didn't need nosy school officials finding out how their children were being treated, so school was a no-go. Cleon had been a gifted runner in Jamaica. He had dreams of competing in the Olympics. Melanie had wanted to be a nurse, and Duane, the natural entertainer who could dazzle and hold a room, dreamt of being a singer. Their dreams and big plans for the future were crushed when they stepped into that apartment. What Everton and Elaine really wanted wasn't a family. They wanted slaves. Cleon was forced to sell drugs alongside Everton, who bought him a pager and showed him how and where to sell cocaine. Everton kept an eye on him from the 22nd-story balcony as Cleon headed out on his bicycle to deal. All the money he ever made was turned over to Everton. Melanie perhaps had it the worst. She was never allowed out of the apartment unless Everton or Elaine was with her, and that was very rarely. Once the baby girl was born, Melanie was her primary caregiver. She was put in charge of all the children. She fed them, changed them, cleaned the house— and all the cooking fell on Melanie's shoulders. Cleon would be in charge of teaching the younger children the basics of math and reading. Early on, Everton and Elaine were quick to start separating the Jamaican children from their mothers and isolating them by confining the children to the apartment. There would be no friends, no school, no interaction at all, unless accompanied by one of the adults, not even with extended family. In order to keep in touch... Duane and Melanie's mother, Opal, would walk to the nearest telephone booth, where she'd make a collect call to talk to her children. For you young listeners, this means that you'd call someone, and the other person would have to accept the charges for the call before you could speak. Opal didn't get much time to talk with Melanie and Duane before their father would snatch the phone away from them. These phone calls only lasted a few months before Everton stopped accepting the calls, his excuse was that he could no longer afford the collect calls. The only regular visitor to the flat was a friend of Everton's, and when he came over, Melanie was usually hidden away. He was one of the very few people outside the family who ever saw her. If a guest caught a glimpse of her, they never saw her without the baby on her lap, and the sighting was usually from a distance because she was closed off in another room. Enterprising Dwayne, likely looking for some freedom, somehow convinced Everton and Elaine to let him work as a paper boy for the Toronto Sun. He was clever, and managed to track down a friend of his mother's. This woman's name was Ava Stewart. She had known Opal and her children from Jamaica, but now she lived in Toronto, near Everton's apartment. Duane would occasionally stop by and visit her while he was on his paper route. When she moved further away— Somehow, the ingenious 13-year-old Duane found her, and one Sunday in June 1992, almost a year and a half after he began living in Canada, he showed up at her house. Ava Stewart remembered the visit well because her sister and a friend of theirs from Jamaica were over. When Duane arrived, her basement apartment filled with laughter and noise because Duane always brought it with him. Ava made them dinner and Duane asked if he could sleep over. She said yes, but make sure you call your father and let him know. She couldn't remember if he ever did make that call. She remembered the night being happy and fun, but the next morning she was awakened by a knock on the door. It was Everton, wanting to know if Duane was there. When she bent over Duane, tapping him on the shoulder to wake him up and said, your dad's here. He jumped out of bed, and the first thing that came out of his mouth was, "'He's going to kill me.'" And then the whole morning turned to chaos. It was obvious Dwayne didn't want to go home. He was frantic and seemed to be frightened, but when push came to shove, Dwayne went with Everton. Later that same day, Everton came back to Ava's house, knocking on her door and demanding to know what Dwayne had talked to her about. Ava was confused because Dwayne hadn't talked about anything. It seemed to her as if Everton was upset and angry because he wanted information from her that she didn't have to give him. She couldn't figure out what was going on, but it became more clear a short time later when she got a call from Opal, from Jamaica. Opal asked Ava if it was true that Duane was dead, but Ava didn't know what she was talking about. Ava then called Everton, who confirmed that Duane had died. He completed suicide the night after he had spent the night at Ava's house. According to police reports made that day, Dwayne went back home with his father. That evening, he either jumped from the balcony of the apartment or slipped while trying to get onto the neighbor's balcony. Somehow, he went over the railing and fell the 22 stories to his death. Observers called the police, who were dispatched to the building. The apartment superintendent identified the boy's body and sent police up to the apartment. Once there, Cleon, now age 18, answered the door. Melanie, now aged 15, and the newborn baby were there, but no one else was. Everton and Elaine had left the apartment, taking the other two children with them. I think this is pretty suspicious, but we'll come back to that later. Cleon told them that Duane had been acting up and was jealous of the attention that Melanie had been getting. He told police that Duane had beaten Melanie up the day before, and that's why he'd run away. Cleon told police that after Everton brought Duane home, Duane hadn't seemed upset. At some point, Everton and Elaine had called Cleon into their bedroom, and at that moment, they all heard the balcony doors open. Cleon went to the door to see what was going on and saw Duane jump. Duane was pronounced dead at St. Joseph's Hospital. Later that day, Everton called police from a payphone. He told them that he knew what had happened and that he knew they wanted to talk to him, but he couldn't deal with them just yet because his wife was screaming, crying, and trembling, and he needed to deal with her first. In the apartment, the officers were interviewing Melanie. They noted that she had an astonishing array of injuries. She was covered with bruises and scratches. She had welts and bruising on her stomach a cut to her head and a swollen nose. Her ankle and her hand were swollen as well. Her injuries covered two full pages in the police report. She was offered medical attention, but she turned down the help. Cleon, her brother, told police that the baby would start to cry if she were to leave. He really needed her to stay there. Three days later, investigators finally interviewed Everton and Elaine. They told him that Duane had been causing problems in Jamaica, And that's why he'd been sent to Canada in the first place. More recently, he'd been jealous of Melanie's treatment, and that's why he'd beat her. They also claimed Duane had threatened suicide before. Everton told police that he told Duane he'd have to go back to Jamaica if he kept hurting his sister, and he thinks that's why Duane decided to jump. He didn't want to go back to Jamaica. They told police that no one else was on the balcony with Duane, and that the two of them left the apartment because they couldn't face what had happened. On their way out, they didn't even stop to look at his body. Cleon and Melanie's statements seemed to match the story that Duane jumped or fell to his death. With no proof otherwise, investigators ruled Duane's death as a suicide. Opal begged for details, but the information she gleaned from Everton was minimal, And she wasn't allowed much time to talk to Melanie. Their stories all matched, so Opal was left with the question as to why her vivacious 13 year old son would kill himself. Her questions went unanswered. Communication with Everton and Melanie, always short and stilted, would eventually come to a complete stop. Opal Austin, the roadside vendor and mother to Duane and Melanie, was virtually without resources. She had no phone, no money, no power, but she had one friend who knew someone who knew someone else, and when Duane died, she begged him for help. Ultimately, the Jamaican government would write a letter dated June 17, 1993. The letter was from the Jamaican counselor in Toronto. They had contacted Melanie and were satisfied that she was doing well. She was scheduled to begin school in September 1993, but currently stayed home with her younger brothers and sister. They also looked into the death of Duane and reported that it was indeed a suicide. A note also said that aside from Duane's death, Melanie appeared to be quite happy. Years would go by where Opal didn't hear from her daughter. Around the age that Melanie would have been 20, Everton told Opal that she'd run away to the United States and he had no way to contact her. If Melanie wanted to be found, she'd reach out to them. In other words, leave him alone about Melanie. Opal never gave up trying to find her daughter, telling all her friends and all the customers who came to her little road stand, many of whom had family in the United States, about her missing daughter. She kept letters from Everton, even though he had curiously instructed her to destroy them, the last of which was dated November 12, 1993, which was a year and a half after Duane had died, but a couple years before Melanie had reportedly run away. He complained about the kids to Opal. He complained that they were disobedient and wasting their lives and that Melanie was weird. Opal asked about Mello and wondered why she hadn't written, and his response was essentially that he told her to write, but she said she just wants to live her life and didn't want to argue about it. Do any of you listeners have hair standing up on the back of your neck? Have you sent something happening here because Opal did? She knew her daughter and just couldn't understand why she didn't keep in touch. Opal would never hear from Melanie again. So what was really going on in Canada? Well, I'm going to jump sideways in the story now. On September 1st, 1994, almost a year after receiving that letter, and while Opal was still hoping to hear from her daughter, a constable with the canine unit of the York Regional Police was patrolling along Highway 7 when he noticed a plume of black smoke. He tracked it to a spot behind an industrial area, and he saw that there were flames shooting a couple meters high that started from a pile close to a garbage bin. At the base of the fire was a large tire, mostly melted, and that was the source of the black smoke. The heat was so intense, the constable couldn't come closer than four or five meters, or about fifteen feet. A second officer arrived with a fire extinguisher, but that only temporarily put the blaze out. The flames sprung back to life. Firefighters were called next and were able to douse the fire. It was then that they all saw, amidst the charred heap of rubber, a horrifying sight. If you don't want to hear about it, forward this episode about two minutes because it gets pretty gross. At that point, it was obvious that there was a body lying "'on the tire in the fetal position. "'There was no flesh on the legs, "'and the head was black and charred. "'There was a metal square shape around the body "'that looked like the frame of a suitcase. "'The suitcase girl was what she became known as "'in the media once they determined the corpse was a female. "'No name was associated with the body, "'and no one came forward with missing information "'about a teenage girl. "'Police asked for public assistance "'in identifying the remains of the victim.' Forensic testing indicated the victim was likely of East Indian or Nilotic origin, which means they're from the Nile, including countries like Sudan, Ethiopia, Somalia, and Egypt. The victim was described to be a dark-skinned Caucasian. She was 5'2", with a very slim build, only 50 to 85 pounds. That's about how much my 8-year-old weighs, maybe? Um, the victim had dark curly hair, although her hair may have been dyed a reddish color. The victim had protruding front teeth, which were in good condition, and the estimated age was between 12 to 18 years old. Her only dental work was a single filling. The remains were extensively burned, and unfortunately, her fingerprints, handprints, and footprints had been burnt off. In her stomach, pathologists found grains that originated in the Nile Basin. Based on this information, police thought she might have been a newly arrived member of the East Indian community and a victim of an honor killing. It was obvious to investigators that gasoline and tires had been used to fuel the fire. Police released information that the victim had multiple healing fractures, most likely occurring between three weeks to six months prior to her death. They believed this to be a result from a fall from height or the result of a motor vehicle accident, which resulted in fractures of the lower back, including the vertebrae and ribs and pelvic area, her knee and right ankle. That's a lot of broken bones. They believed this young woman would have been immobile and as a result, unable to walk. She would have been in excruciating pain from the broken bones at all times. She had had no medical intervention, and she wasn't given any treatment for her terrible injuries. No one came forward with any information that led to the identification of this woman. An artist's rendering of what the victim may have looked like was drawn, and a sculpture was made with the hopes of identifying the victim, but this proved fruitless. In my opinion, the drawing looked like a white woman, and the sculpture looked more of like an African descent um they didn't look like each other let's just put it that way the renderings made with the hopes of identifying the victim proved fruitless 18 years would go by before a single phone call would tie everything i've shared with you together in 2011 a person with conscience later identified as a pastor made a phone call to police He claimed that a parishioner named Elaine Bittersing told him that those unidentified remains found in a burning suitcase years before belonged to her stepdaughter, Melanie. The pastor said that Elaine Everton and her children had been members of his congregation for a year and a half. The church had been helping them financially and emotionally as the family was very poor. One day, Elaine lingered after church until most of the others had left and then she asked to speak with the pastor alone about something important. The pastor asked Everton to leave them alone, and at which point Elaine started to cry, and then she confessed. She told him how Melanie had come from Jamaica to live with them. She said Melanie was deprived of food and water and confined to a closet. Elaine claimed that she tried to give her stepdaughter food, but was caught by her husband and was beaten for doing so. She said Melanie was beaten and starved and was found dead in the family apartment in 1994. Elaine's words were Melanie was not fed, she wasn't given medical attention, and she wasn't given anything. She died like a dog. Elaine said she didn't call the police or an ambulance at the time because there was no phone in the home. I guess, in her mind, Watching TV was the next best thing to do because she'd go on to say that she was watching a show and she saw a commercial for luggage, so she turned around and told her husband that maybe they should put Melanie in a suitcase. Melanie had entered that apartment nearly four years earlier, happy, healthy, and full of hopes and dreams. She left it badly beaten with several broken bones, starved, weighing less than 80 pounds, murdered, and then stuffed into a suitcase. Elaine told the pastor, probably hoping for forgiveness, that she and her husband and her stepson, Cleon, took the body to a rural area with the suitcase containing Melanie's body, and then they set the luggage on fire while she sat in the car. Thankfully, after hearing the story, the pastor told the woman he would have to go to police. He asked her to verify the story as 100% true, which she did. A couple days later, the pastor met with police, who then questioned Elaine and Everton. They asked Elaine if she feared for her life, to which she replied, no. A DNA test was performed, confirming Melanie's identity. And after that, Elaine and Everton were arrested. Soon after, the oldest stepbrother, Cleon, was arrested, too. When the trial began, Cleon would testify against his parents. The jurors wondered how the young, 20-something strong young man could have been so frightened that he didn't raise a finger to help his terrorized half-sister, or, for that matter, himself. He struggled particularly during cross examination to explain. In September of 1994, he was 20 years old. He was out and about dealing drugs on his father's orders, but he didn't feel like an adult living in that house. He was asked why he didn't run away, but Cleon replied that he was scared for his life and had no connections or money. He said he should have helped her, and when he thinks about his sister getting beaten, he knows he should have defended her, but he was so scared. According to Cleon, Everton woke him up and told him that she'd run away. He ordered Cleon to search the apartment while he and Elaine went out to the car to look for her. Cleon didn't really believe the story She was so weak by that time that Melanie could barely stand. She had no money, no resources. She knew no one in the city. She'd effectively been held prisoner for three and a half years. But the truth was, Cleon wanted to believe the story. In court, he told the jurors about his move to Toronto. He said that Elaine's influence on Everton made life difficult for him, Duane, and Melanie. They were treated like machines. He and his half-sister were forced to do all the cooking and cleaning and care for the younger children. They were forced to sleep on cardboard boxes on the floor of the apartment because they weren't allowed to touch Elaine's furniture. Everton forced Cleon and Melanie to tie his shoes, all the while kicking and stomping at them. He and Elaine also rationed their food. In fact, they weren't even allowed to eat any of the food in the kitchen. Elaine and Everton fought frequently, and at one point, Elaine left him for a few weeks and took Melanie and her other children with her. When they finally returned, Everton began to abuse Melanie even more because he believed that, or he was told that, Melanie had tried to keep Elaine away from Everton. If he got upset, he would kick the children in the stomach or in the head. The children were treated like domestic laborers, and they had to answer whenever Everton rang a bell, which he used to call them. They lived in fear of their father's wrath and were treated like slaves. They weren't allowed to sit on the furniture, watch television, or eat food unless it was given to them. The anger between Everton and Melanie grew and grew, and the family witnessed it, but did nothing to help her. Cleon said the least little thing she'd do, he'd get angry with her. He said, sometimes I think he wanted to hit Elaine, but instead he hit Melanie. He turned everything on Melanie. I wish she was here to tell her side of the story. The jurors heard that Everton would drag Melanie across the floor, throw her against the walls, and stomp on her as she lay in pain on the ground. She was called evil and the devil. Everton's treatment of his daughter grew even worse in the months before her death. Her food was rationed or withheld altogether, and she was confined in a closet or sometimes in a barrel. She was chained to furniture and had her head pushed into a flushing toilet. She was made to bathe and relieve herself outside on the apartment balcony. She wasn't allowed to use the bathroom. The closet she was often closed in wasn't even big enough to sit down in. She'd be locked in there overnight and forced to sleep standing up. The only time she ever left the apartment by herself was the one time she tried to run away. She'd been beaten so badly by this point that she could barely walk. She only made it as far as the third step in a nearby stairwell. Cleon found her there, and Melanie told him it would be better if she was dead. Cleon brought her back to the apartment because he was afraid for them both and felt there was nowhere they could go. Eventually, she became so weak, she couldn't even stand. Cleon helped her get dressed and cleaned up after her when she couldn't make it to the bathroom. She died a short time later, sometime during the night. The last time he had seen her, she was laying on the floor on a piece of cardboard, clutching her stomach. He was told she'd run away the following day. When the forensic pathologist came to the stand, he catalogued the series of injuries and the health problems that Melanie was afflicted with. He reiterated that her body was malnourished due to starvation, and that there were twenty-one healing fractures to her various bones. He also said that fluid and microscopic particles were found in the teenager's lungs, suggesting drowning was a significant cause in her death. If you remember, I said earlier that Cleon had testified that his father would push the girl's head in the toilet as punishment. Perhaps this would explain the foreign matter in her lungs. Oddly, a pepper had also been found inserted into her vagina. Perhaps sexual assault was a bigger part of this story than I've seen reported. Everton's defense lawyers argued that there was no evidence that Everton had killed Melanie, and instead pointed the finger at his wife. But Cleon's testimony helped put Everton in jail. In a unanimous ruling, Everton Bittersing was found guilty of first degree murder of his daughter. His wife, Elaine, would be found guilty of second degree murder. Cleon would be set free for providing testimony against his parents. Duane's suicide was not brought up at the trial, but his case was reopened to try to determine whether he had actually been murdered as well. His body was exhumed, but no new evidence was found. His bones had been too badly broken from the fall to determine whether he'd been hurt just before it occurred. The detective who solved Melanie's case believed that Duane was going to be beaten and he was trying to escape when he fell to his death or was pushed, but he can't prove it. Cleon says he never told anyone the stories of his life until his father was arrested in 2012 because he feared Everton would exact revenge against his family. His fears were partly based on details that were concealed from the jury during the trial, including the fact that Everton once showed him his gun. He testified that his father threatened to harm his family if he misbehaved, or Everton would implicate him in drug dealing or child abuse. Cleon claimed his father told him he knew people who knew how to squeeze a rat, and introduced him to violent criminals who lived in Kingston these criminals would gladly kick down the door to his mother's home and shoot her and his family. The jury also never heard about Duane's death, or that when Duane ran away, Everton beat Melanie, trying to find out where Duane was hiding. Duane never laid a hand on his sister. What Cleon did share with the jury was that Elaine was the mind behind the beatings on Melanie, while Everton was the fist's. Cleon shared the relentless suffering and guilt he felt, even 22 years after his sister's demise at the hands of their father and stepmother. Having to witness the emotional and physical abuse was something he lives with every single day of his life. He said, I carry extreme guilt for not stopping the abuse and torture of Melanie. I'll never forgive myself for that. I am a man and permanently scarred for life. Opal Austin was interviewed in 2020 at the age of 65. She said there's been no relief from the pain she's felt from the loss of her children. She said, Sometimes I wake up before dawn and I see my daughter, natural, like when she was young in Jamaica before she left, how she used to look, that quietness, that pleasantness of her under the tree with one of the children on her lap. Dwayne Bittersing's death is still on the books as a suicide. May they both rest in peace. Thank you so much for listening today. As always, I ask that you please rate and review the podcast or leave a rating on our Facebook page. It means a lot to me and helps this podcast grow. If you'd like to, you can check out Twisted Travel and True Crime on Instagram or TikTok also. I'd like to thank a couple of you who have reached out recently, so a big thank you goes to Shell Nanke, who says, uh, Five stars. Highly recommend. I started with the episode Murder for Lobster, and I love how Sandy delivers each episode and keeps the listener involved and hanging on her every word. I'm glad I found this podcast. I'm glad you found it too, Shelby. She's from Addicted to Crime podcast, so give her a listen if you get a chance. I'd also like to thank... E.G.L.Z. Campos, uh, who gave me five stars, and says, so good, well-researched, and an engaging podcast. Short and sweet. Thank you very much to both of you. I really appreciate your time, and I'd love to give you all, all you wonderful listeners, a big thank you for listening, and as always, I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Later, man. Me gone. Worst Jamaican accent ever.